Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 87 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, our musical guest is Kate Puckett. We'll listen to our interview with him and three of his original tunes recorded in our studio. Jim Eagleman discusses the elusive morel mushroom, and we have a winning story from our first ever Story Slam recorded this past April. We have a new edition of On the Road with Carrie Ray. Jeff Tryon weighs in on the clear cut at the Bean Blossom Overlook. And Dave Seastrom shares his thoughts on transitions. We begin segment one with our Cade Puckett interview. Jim Eagleman shares his knowledge about morel mushrooms, and we'll close with Cade Puckett's tune, Pines. It's my pleasure to introduce Cade Puckett, who has just treated us to four original tunes right here in our studio, all of which were absolutely outstanding. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. I've been checking you out, and Timberly must be the one in charge of your Facebook yeah, she's page. She's the boss. Well, I, I can understand that. <laughs> she's also your social media director. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And your manager. Yep. Mm-hmm. Booking uh, agent. And booking agent. Mm-hmm. And wife. Both of you guys are from Linton. Mm-hmm. You play here quite a bit. Yeah, and, I spend uh, a lot of time in Bloomington and Nashville. Yeah. yeah. I've seen you many times at the Pine Room, and it's a shame that that venue is no longer available. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I understand you're now playing at the Brown County Inn these yeah. days. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's the fourth Thursday of every month. Excellent. Your guitar style is absolutely unique and your own finger style. You know, I hear some jazz chords. Uh, it's obvious that you've got some blues influence and some other stuff. Talk about how you got to this point. I mean, mm. you started out with Louie Louie. You're nine years old. Yeah, I did. Say, it actually, it wasn't nine. I think it was 13. Okay. So it was a talent show. It was with a band. And we all, I think there were four guitar players and a drummer. We played Louie Louie for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, the all guitar band. <laughs> yeah. We've all, we we've all been off. there. Yeah. <laughs> 
And then, but I, I mean, I play, that's when I started playing. Uh-huh. I lied before I played. I was telling all my friends that I played, but I didn't play. I see. They were players, and I was lying. You just hope that I was just, you could just wing it enough. Well, my, it. I, I was surrounded by guitars. So my dad and my grandpa were guitar players. Okay. And they were Chet pickers, thumb pickers, too. All right. Well, Chet Atkins. Yeah. Can't, so can't do no better Jerry than Jerry Reed, Chet Atkins, Merle Travis. Yeah. That's what I heard growing up. And there were other guitar players at the house, too. So I got all that. And really, I was playing Van Halen stuff and, you know, You have Night a Van Halen shirt on mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. The majority of the time, listen to more funk, rock and roll and stuff. I don't really listen to Chet Atkins and all that guitar stuff. Hardly at all, really. But I, I just listen to what I like and try to pull things out of there and put it on the guitar. So you don't actually listen to Chet, but you channel him when you play. When I was young, I did a lot. Okay. Yeah. So that imprint is there then. Yeah. Actually, how it started was my dad would drop me off at my grandpa's in the morning when he went to the coal mine because he didn't want to leave me home by myself. Right. <laughs> so For about all... 5.30 in the morning, I get dropped off there. So I woke up one morning to, he was playing Winter Wonderland. And, okay. he, and it was the chords he played are just killer. So that, my light bulb went off. So then he was out mowing and I was being nosy and found a, this cabinet full of records. And they were all Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed and Merle Travis records. Well, your grandpa had great taste. Yeah, so when he found, he saw me in there, and he told me, he said, pick a record out of there and take it home, and if you learn one song off of it, you can have the record. So I was learning, I tried to learn every one of them, because at the time I was really, I just, that, I don't know what it was about the way he played Winter Wonderland, but yeah, it just yeah. shot me you know, off to doing that. So I was learning Van Halen and Metallica and all that stuff, but I was learning as much as I could off these Chet records so I could get them, take them home, and keep them. Metallica. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I just, (laughs) after what we just listened to, I'm I'm just not connecting the dots. I played everything you can think of. Uh Uh-huh. So are there moments at home when the Metallica in you just comes out? Yeah. And help yourself? (laughs) Yeah. So you have an electric guitar? Oh, yeah. I've got a couple of them. Uh Uh-huh. My grandpa's old guitar's in there, too. So. Yeah? What was your grandpa's guitar? It's a 58 Gibson ES-175. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. So it's like a holy grail thing in the house. Oh. This is Rick. I got a question. Uh, why don't you tell us about uh, what you brought with you? Your guitar looks like it's been around the block well, once yeah. or twice. And... Well, the acoustic that I play most of the time, at the time, I didn't have a guitar. Friends would leave me guitars, and I'd play them, and... They would come and get them, you know. And I, but uh, I'd seen that guitar up at the shop. And one day, I wasn't thinking about it, but my grandpa, the other side, my mother's father, okay. who don't play anything, he always says he plays the radio. Right. You know? He shows up at the house, and it was his birthday, on his birthday, and said, I heard there's something up at the shop you're looking at, you know, and come up here and show me. And so I did, reluctantly, you know. So I knew something was up with him. He's he because he you know why does he want to go to the music shop? Right. So we go up there and I'm showing him. And he's like, pull it out of there, get what you need on it. And so he bought me that guitar on his birthday. On his birthday. So what is that guitar? It's a Blue Ridge. Okay. A beautiful sound and a, an incredible player to bring it out. Well, it's wonderful. Your grandpa's still around. Yeah, he is. His birthday actually is coming up. 
He'll be 92 this month. Is your other grandpa still around? No, he's gone now. Oh. It's 2010 he passed. Did you inherit his record collection? Yeah, I got all the records. Good. The ones I accumulated for, you know, work. Yeah, you and earned then... the hardware, right? <laughs> yeah, and then the rest of them, you know, at the end. I was What was funny, his name was Norman, and... Uh, in all those Chet Atkins records, there was one record that was my grandma's, this little 45, and it was Norman, the song Norman, you know? <laughs> right, right. So it was a her, that was the only record in there that was hers. Well, you made a <laughs> reference to Norman in your tune, and yeah. uh, Cade is kind of an unusual first name. How did yeah. that come to be? Well, Mom, she didn't want me to be named Norman the Third. Uh, and bless her heart for that, <laughs> yeah, right? I know. <laughs> so there was a TV show on at the time, and I had I looked it up the other day. It was really a TV show. It was called Cades County. Do you remember that? Um, not it was, right It was hand, with but... a C, though. Okay. So she thought, man, I'll name him Cade, and she changed it, the C to a K for the masculine effect. Uh, well, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so I see I've met some Cades, but they're Cs, you know. Uh. So, Cade, um, with a K. Okay. Um, what about recordings and things? I mean, are you making CDs? What are you doing? Yeah, I do them myself, basically. I'm uh-huh. always recording stuff. I mean... Got your home computer thing set mm-hmm. up and doing yeah. all of that home studio yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's, that's been going on for years. Just it went from analog stuff to computer stuff, and uh-huh. now there's all the years of that, too. So, anything, any kind of music you can think of... You you obviously have a high degree of creativity in, in making new original music. I like yeah, I like to make new stuff. Like when you're learning a song in particular, or even when you're writing them, what's your process? Basically, I'll listen to the song a bunch, like you know anybody would, mm-hmm. and just get really into it, just saturate myself in that song. Then I'll sit down and look at the chords. I just still try to go by ear and feel it out. And then instead of doing it the same way twice, I'll study how it's put together. So once I have that, I've got the melody embedded in me, which is what you really want to be paying the most attention to. But then I can embellish the whole time any way I want. Not flashy, but just different melody structure. So I really like to be free and ad-lib all of it. But once together. you figure a song out, you stick with that pattern for that song, or do you improvise? I as might you go? even change the style of it. <laughs> I you know, like uh, Misty. I sometimes play bossa nova. The moods I always change. Sometimes when I do like uh, somewhere over the rainbow, I'll do four different styles of music in there. Something <laughs> I've been doing lately is taking uh, get, um, gypsy jazz and mixing the bossa nova with it, which is real odd when it comes out. <laughs> But I like to make fingerstyle stuff more funky because, I mean, it's all 4-4, four, four, so it's the funk's in there. Well, you got the heartbeat going. Yeah. 4-4, four, four, the backbeat. So that's all you do. You just drop the thumb from boom, bum, 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 to boom, bum, boom, bum. Tempo's all the same, but the groove changes. Well, Kate, you were the second champion of the Indiana fingerstyle guitar competition. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that event and how that yeah. went for you? Yeah, we got one coming up here pretty soon. Yeah. You ha- now, you have to sit out a year, is that right? Yeah, I think win? it's two years, isn't yeah. it? Well, you're about due for another yeah, uh, championship. Yeah, coaxed huh? to it. Or I might have to do that. Only the strong survive. Only the strong. Yeah. So I'm a little used to it. When you first 
come to a contest like that, it's pretty nerve-wracking when you get down in there with the guys. But after a while, then you realize it's about the same, and you don't have to play two hours of music. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's, there's that. Well, Cade, uh, it's been marvelous, and thank you so much for treating us to your excellent music. Thank you for having me. Morcella esculenta is the name, the scientific name, of the elusive mushroom that's being pursued right now in Brown County and elsewhere in the Midwest. Recent days of rain, heavy at times, followed by warming temps all day, produce the right conditions, we learn, for proper growth of the morel mushroom. We learn. I have to chuckle at that phrase since I continue to learn some interesting things about this fungi, plural for fungus, Namely, that if you invite me along to hunt morels, your luck has just plummeted. I feel I jinx most friends I hunt with, and they always say, but you're the naturalist, you should know all this stuff. By all this stuff, I assume they think I'm an expert on all things natural, birds, trees, flowers, wildlife, fungi. But I remind them it's a big world with a lot of things to know, and no one person can know all there is to know out there, as I point to the woods. No excuse, Eagleman. Now, where are those morels? The elusive morel, like any fungus, usually grows on dead and dying organic material, leaf litter, twigs, logs, limbs. This is where it gets its nutrients. I say usually, since this is the most common habitat for fungus, but we all hear of mushrooms growing on concrete and shingles, strange places, even old discarded drywall. A spore is the tiny seed from which all fungi grow, so for a mushroom to grow on this foreign material, all conditions must have been right for it to occur there. Just one more thing that is so particularly interesting about this unusual organism. Having read and listened to many experts on fungi, they are called mycologists, I understand the tiny fungal spore can live in dormancy for many years. This was learned from an archaeologic dig at an ancient pyramid in Egypt years ago. The tunnel into the center of the pyramid had been blocked, so excavation of dirt and debris was necessary for the archaeologists to continue. Dirt was brought out daily and piled under a tarp and added to over several weeks. Rain and wind had occurred while the dig was in progress, and the tarp kept the soil dry. At the conclusion, under the tarp, workers found several different kinds of mushrooms, all similar in DNA to today's mushrooms. The plant people on staff with the archaeologists confirmed the mushrooms started growing when conditions became favorable, but that the spores must have been in the soil dormant for thousands of years. Incredible. The tiny morel spore from a mature mushroom when it dries and is carried by the wind must land within close proximity to a damaged or dead root of a tree, any tree, Not just elms we hear about, but also tulip trees, sycamore, ash, maples, oaks. The damaged or dead root then provides the right habitat for the morel spore to grow, or not, or to remain there, perhaps for years. We don't know how long the spore will remain viable, or what is absolutely necessary for the morel mushroom to eventually mature. That is why we don't always get morels to appear in the same place we looked the previous year, 
The spores may be there, the damaged roots may be there, but something is different. It may be moisture, heat, lack of both, or too much of both. So when you hear people claim they have a favorite place where they always find them, that may be true, but with inconsistencies with spring weather, heat and rain and temperatures of the soil, for example, some years will produce morels, some years not, some years plenty, some years none. Like your favorite fishing hole, you never tell anyone about your latest morel bonanza. You keep it to yourself and create all kinds of envy when you come back with a full basket. Lately, a theory from some mycologists well-versed in the topic of morels have claimed that with the EAB, the emerald ash borer, killing so many green and white ash trees here in the Midwest, the environment for morels may be increasing. Ha! Good news! Despite the loss of these beautiful trees. This could be what is happening to my good friend Dave, who was cutting up a dead ash tree the other day and found, when he finally laid down the chainsaw, there were many yellow, tall, fully formed morels at his feet, some of them reaching nine inches. He jumped back and thought, ah, finally the mother load. We talked and sent phone pictures back and forth, and I had to visit the place to see the bounty for myself from the looks of other dead ash trees along his creek, and if all other conditions are right, it appears he will have plenty of good habitat to search for morels in coming years. We both hope so. This morning, Kay pan-fried up some of the morels Dave gave us, and along with eggs and toast, it was a scrumptious meal. Lightly floured and with an egg batter, the lightly salted pieces were browned and so tasty. It brought back memories of other morels from other springs, or from a time we experimented and air-dried them by stringing a thread through the stems, hanging them up, and then later reconstituting them with water. Having morels on a winter day was a real treat. They didn't regain their normal size, now slightly smaller, but it didn't matter. The flavor was still there, and so was the memory of maybe the one time I actually found morels. Jim Eagleman for Nature Ramblings, WFHB FM Radio, the Brown County Hour. Happy morel hunting! And thanks for listening. Now, I'm Kate Puckett. I want to tell you the name of this first tune here. This is called Pine.
Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. The summer season of the Brown County Story Slam takes place the second Thursday of each month through July. Sponsored by our radio show, the Brown County Inn, and the Nashville Arts and Entertainment Commission, it takes place at the Corn Crib Lounge. Our first slam was in April, and the winning story was told by Hondo Thompson. You can listen to all of our story slams recorded live on our website, browncountyhour.com, as well as subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. In this segment, will feature Hondo's winning story, as told on the BCI stage. We'll listen to the latest edition of On the Road with Carrie Ray, and we'll close with Cade's tune, Fuzzy Fingers. Up next is a man who loves MCL fried chicken, Hondo Thompson. I don't think I've ever told an introduction to a story in five minutes, so you're going to have to listen fast. You guys want to hear a story? All right, it's important to know that some 20 years ago, I was the deputy administrator of the health department in Kosciuszko County in charge of septic systems. I was not a popular guy. Not because of the same reasons that we have the problems in this county, but because Before that, I had sat on the rule for 410 on how to put septic systems in, and they hired me anyway, because the three commissioners of that county were also the three builders, and very well known to say, we'll just chop off several hundred feet of your septic system so we can fit your swimming pool in. This happened a lot. I got fired. Now, on my way out, I got a ticket for a seatbelt violation. This was a week before I left. It's a $25 ticket. I put $25 in the envelope, send the ticket in. A week later, I'm running a grocery store in a native village in Antioch, Alaska. And that's what I did for the better part of a year. Now, I come back. Let's fast forward 11 years. I am living down here. I am driving into Kalb County, where I get pulled over for doing 70 and a 55. This is not the first time this has happened. (laughs) I know how this is going to go. It didn't go that way. The officer comes up after he takes my ticket. He said, could you step out of the car and step to the back of the vehicle? I'm like, is there a problem? He said, no, just come to the back of the vehicle. We'll talk about this. I said, well, okay. I don't know what could be possibly going on. He said, could you turn around, put your hands behind your back? I'm like, what? He said, there's a warrant for your arrest. I said, I've I've never done anything in my life besides speeding and some seatbelt violations. He said, well, this is what's going on. He puts his handcuffs behind me and he puts me in the back of the squad car and he takes me to the sheriff's office in DeKalb County. Now, this was a super nice guy. And we had a conversation, there was little radio traffic going on and so forth. And what we ended up finding out is that some 11 years previously, I had done something really bad in Kosciuszko County where I used to work. Still weren't sure what. When we get to the sheriff's office, he says, I need you to stay out here in the parking lot. If I take you in, they're going to take your phone. Start making some phone calls. Clock's running. So in this amount of time, I'm able to get a hold of a friend in Kosciuszko County, 
and get them to the clerk's office to pay $25 bond, because that was my bond. This is important for a later point. Got a hold of my attorney, our company attorney. He gets a hold of the county prosecutor, who gets a hold of the clerk, who now has the person that I have with $25 standing in front of them, and we all figure out that when I sent in my $25, I didn't sign the back of the ticket where it said I was guilty. So they set it for a hearing. And I went to Alaska. And I have a failure to appear warrant on me. Now, 11 years had passed. What we find out later is that after 10 years, the local court can sign that the, the tickets expire, essentially. And the judge can either throw them away or re-sign them up. So he re-signed it up. Now, some things that happened in that 10 years where you think that this would have come to a conclusion at some point previous to this day, but it hadn't because it had been on the local radar. But when he re-signed it up, it got put on the new Indiana statewide radar. And that's where I got flashed. So he gets a hold of the prosecutor. The prosecutor says, yep, there's someone standing there with his $25 because your bond can't be more than your ticket, right? It's a $25 ticket, it's a $25 bond. Prosecutor says, yeah, well, this judge is a stickler. I'm afraid your guy's going to have to spend the night in jail. He said, well, I'll release him to my reconnaissance. I'll have him in front of the judge first thing tomorrow morning. No, 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 no. We're going to put him in jail. What was the theme tonight? There you go. I got a real sense of what the group W bench was that night. <laughs> Because I got taken in, I got printed, photographed, showered, searched. That's a whole other story. Put into an orange jumpsuit, given a big thing with a whole bunch of things that were a lot more important later than I realized at the time. Toilet paper, towels, a comb, a toothbrush, things like this. And sent in. And before I went in, little tears were coming out of my eyes. They said, you need to suck that up, man. <laughs> this is going to get real serious real quick. They introduced me to Mother said so right on his neck, mother. And I spent the night there, and I'm getting short on time here, so let me finish this up. This is a much longer story. The next day I was extradited to Kosciuszko County. The guy that picked me up, the sheriff that picked me up, sheriff deputy that picked me up, was the husband of my secretary when I was deputy administrator. He went, Hondo, I went like, Dave. He's like, what the hell? I'm like, you tell me, you're the one here. He's like, come on. Put me in the front street, bought me a Mountain Dew, bought me some sunflower seeds, hauled me up, telling me the whole way up there about this judge who was, he put a quadriplegic woman in jail for marijuana possession. And the entire county said, please don't do this. You know how much it's going to cost? Like, I don't care. She broke the law. So I went all the way up to Kosciuszko County where they booked me in, took my fingerprints, took my photograph, didn't search me, bless their little hearts. Looked at me and said, do you have $25? I said, yes, I do. I happen to have $35 in my wallet, which, if you know me, is a really weird thing. Take this man to the clerk, have him sign this time, and then he can go. So they took me to the clerk, and I signed, yes, 11 years ago, I did not wear a seatbelt in Syracuse, Indiana. $25. They went, you're free to go. And they put me out on the street in Kosciuszko County. My car was on the other side of the state where it had been impounded. <laughs> the fish out of water story is what happened in the jail, and that's a whole other story. But that's what happened that night. Well, here, the, thing, the thing is, I've got one more second here. 
Remember, I got fired from this county for not wanting people to break rules. And I had my ass hauled back up there for a seatbelt violation. And $25. Thank you. This past winter, I flew home for a weekend to see my family around Christmas. I was driving from my sister's house out through the country to see my parents on a bright morning following a rather chilly night. As I reached a point where the back road emerged from a canopy of trees and spilled into a broad clearing, I could see the sun vaporizing the night's frost into a dreamlike landscape. I continued on through the haze, catching sight of the crook's covered bridge in the distance, about a half a mile away. Before I realized what was happening, I had turned right and was headed for the solitary structure. This is Carrie Ray, here with another installment of For a Song. As a Park County, Indiana native, I have long been fascinated with covered bridges. The town square in the county seat of Rockville is home each October to the Covered Bridge Festival. When I was a child, the county boasted some 33 bridges. Once I reached high school, I was able to serve as a tour guide during the festival, sharing information about the bridges, historic sites, and rural life with the visitors. There was a script for each route that I used as a guide before basically memorizing the highlights and facts. The job consisted of standing at the front of a repurposed school bus, bouncing down back roads, and speaking over the intercom. I loved meeting the folks who came to our little town, especially the ones from urban areas and other countries, as I was keen to experience all I could of the world outside of my rural existence. It didn't hurt that being a guide also provided a pass out of school a couple of afternoons that week. You know, since it was an educational experience. <laughs> I learned a lot about covered bridges playing that role. Why they were covered, why most were red, why there were windows cut at the ends of some why they said, cross this bridge at a walk at each end. I won't go into all those details now, as they are not the point here, but these structures are amazing feats of engineering. I reached the pull-off near the bridge and proceeded to wander around, noting familiar features and snapping photos as the sun climbed slowly higher and the air continued to clear, if not warm much. 1856. That's when this bridge was first built well over 160 years ago. And this wooden structure not only continues to stand, but is in service over the Little Raccoon Creek with likely dozens of modern cars and trucks driving over it daily. Most of the bridges in Park County are of the Burr Arch construction. Two wooden arches span the crossing distance from stone abutments on either side and serve as the foundation upon which the bridge is built. The weight it can support is limited only by the natural material, as the strength of a burr arch is theoretically infinite. As I wandered around the site, a car approached and crossed. I love the sound a bridge makes as the floorboards creak and the arches transfer the vehicle's weight forward. It's as if you can hear it working, straining and objecting just a little under the load. That, combined with the scent of seasoned wood, released by the warmth of the summer sun wafting through the open windows of our 64 Oldsmobile, is a sensory snapshot of childhood for me. I climbed back into my rental car and cranked the heat to chase away the chill. As I pulled onto Wimmer Road, I began thinking about how the staying power of the Crooks Bridge is such a foil for the arguably disposable nature of today's existence. How, once upon a time, Things were built to last, 
to stand the test of time. In fact, a little research reminded me that this bridge, in particular, was a marvel of perseverance. One account states that the stream beneath it filled in, rerouting itself 20 rods or so, also known as 110 yards, to the west. Another alleges it was carried away by a flood from its original to the current location, which is plausible given that these bridges are not fastened in any way to the abutments and are held in place only by their weight. In either case, the bridge was reset in the current spot and sat with no road to it for several years, earning it the nickname the Lost Bridge. The phrase, to stand the test of time, is most often defined as remaining some combination of effective, successful, important, or respected over a long period of time. I even found one source that defined it as to not be forgotten or to never break down. Now that bridge, save flood or fire, will likely continue to stand well past my days on this earth, and likely yours. But it too will ultimately meet the fate of all humans and the things we create, and will return to dust. But not all creations are bound to crumble, rust, or decay. There are still some things that have the potential to exist in perpetuity. Stories are individual and collective stories told and retold. In the present, sharing them reminds us that we are not alone. And someday, they will be the thread that connects this present with a future now. Like the Burr Arch, their strength is theoretically infinite, as is their ability to stand the test of time. Turns out the only elemental threat to their longevity is apathy. So bring some care and share. First, decide you have stories. Trust me, you do. Secondly, decide that they matter. Trust me, they do. And while all stories have value, I'm specifically talking about the formative ones, the lessons you've learned, the adventures you've had, the feelings you've experienced, the stories you've been told by someone you know or love. Then tell them. Swap them around a campfire. Write them down in a journal. Type them out. Set them to music. I don't care how you do it. Just open your heart and share them with family, friends, acquaintances, strangers, anyone who will listen. I'm Carrie Ray, wishing you Godspeed and hoping you'll join me next time on For a Song. This is called Fuzzy Fingers. This is a new one, too. So here we go. Are you ready for this?
no shiny car I don't have a reason just to beat up dirty guitar for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Power Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. Our final segment begins with Jeff Tryon's observations about the clear cut at the Bean Blossom Overlook. Dave Seastrom shares his essay about going through transitions. And we'll close the show with Cade Puckett's tune, The Man with the Guitar. I would like to publicly thank whoever it was that hacked down all the trees up on the northeast side of the upper Bean Blossom Overlook. 
In their thoughtless greed and haste, I believe they have boosted the cause of public forest advocates more than we have been able to do with all of our efforts. For years, we've been wailing away like a bunch of prophets in the wilderness. For 20 years, Charlie Cole and others have been writing long and erudite letters to the newspaper. Our own Dave Seastrom and others have pushed the state legislature and the governor to do their job in protecting the interests of all Hoosiers as a group. Forest grass has been on the ground and in the face of blind capitalist tree killers raping our public lands for profit. They like to put that old boy in jail for trespassing the scene of an ecological crime, but as far as I know, he's still rambling free. Full disclosure, we here at the Brown County Hour take an editorial stand on the logging of our public lands. We say, leave the public lands alone. Let them be the forests their creator intended them to be. I've spoken before about this issue on this show. You can go back and listen to that commentary on our website. But as I say, we were all just wailing in the wilderness. Nobody was seemingly paying any attention. Logging of public lands continues unabated because seemingly nobody cared. But after they butchered this little chunk of forest, this couple of acres up on Bean Blossom Hill, there was a public outcry. Newspaper headlines, TV crews, the angry rabble confronted their elected officials. Now people can see it. Now they have to drive past it every day on their way to work or for the thousands of tourists we entertain each year, just as they pop over the ridge into that land of enchantment we call Nashville. This god-awful view of bare hills denuded of their natural cover. When the DNR and the timber barons get together to hack down hundreds of acres of your forest in Yellowwood or up in Morgan Monroe, very few people actually see it, and they count on that. That's why they don't want forest grass going in there and taking pictures of what they're doing. They may not actually admit it's wrong, but they know there will be a storm of public outrage if it is generally known what they are doing and how they are doing it. Here's what they are doing. Creating an environmental disaster by clear-cutting the trees that were supposedly set aside for us. You know, we the people. The lands we as Americans and Hoosiers own in common. Yeah, yeah, I know. It'll all grow back, and, and Brown County's been through it all before the environmental disaster of having every tree in the county cut for profit. That economic boom in the 1880s led to an economic disaster and some of the hardest times Brown County has ever known. As I've said before, and I want to be clear, we're not saying don't ever cut another tree in Indiana. Far from it. 90% of the trees that are cut in Indiana for lumber and wood products come from privately owned lands. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you own it, do what you want with it. Have your own personal ecological disaster on your own land if you want to. But I've noticed that more and more people are placing these wooded lands into conservancies to be preserved for future generations. The Indiana forests that have been set aside for the people, public lands like Yellowwood and Morgan Monroe State Forests should be kept pristine, untouched, unmanaged, since managing a forest is DNR speak for clear-cutting it. They manage to get every penny they can out of our land, and they leave us with the mess. It's a mindset. Some people look at a tree, and all they can see is bored feet, dollars and cents. Some people look at that raw scar on the earth up at Bean Blossom. They don't see a thing wrong with it. The Parks and Rec official who actually signed the contract to log the Bean Blossom Overlook has resigned from public life to 
spend more time with his family. But to be fair, it never even occurred to him that there'd be anything wrong with clear-cutting the forest. At the Bean Blossom Overlook, we get a good idea of what that thought process looks like, a window into the views of the people who are doing it. The newspaper said the logger who executed the contract told the commissioners it wasn't a clear cut. I guess because they left a little fringe of trees up along the highway. I guess to loggers, that's not a clear cut. If they leave any living thing standing, it's not a clear cut. But you go take a look. There's nothing taller than a foot high anywhere on that raw cut. Ask yourself, do I really believe this is not a clear cut? According to the paper, an official from the state told commissioners that they had looked it over and there was no soil running off from this egregious clear-cut on the side of a steep hill. That's right. Miraculously, there is no runoff from this particular clear-cut. Setting aside for a moment logic and gravity, one only has to refer to the aerial photo that ran on the front page of the newspaper. Look at those lakes down the hill. They are brown. They look like chocolate milk. I'm familiar with one of those lakes. I have fished in it and swam in it. It was pristine and crystal clear. But that's what happens when we have experts trained by universities to think like corporations. We get a crazy kind of up-is-down logic where the only thing that seems to matter is money. But we love the trees. We love the forest. There's no way to have an old-growth forest, the kind that once covered 98% of Indiana, unless you refrain from cutting the trees. The only way is to not cut them. I heard the whippoorwills singing the other night. I live on the edge of the Brown County State Park. I hear woodpeckers all the time. These are species. This is an experience you only get with a large-scale, old-growth forest. Like me, they are deep woods birds. Without a place where you can go and experience these things, you don't really know what you're missing. And that's what the money changers are counting on. Go up to Bean Blossom. Take a good long look. Is this how you want our public lands to be treated? Is this what you, the taxpayer and voter, would support? Or is your birthright being stolen out from under your nose by greedy profiteers and the experts that justify everything they want to do? Go ahead. Go take a look. This past March, I turned 65, and now I'm officially a senior citizen. Actually, just to be sure of my status, I looked it up, and at least on paper, it's true. And that's the point. In spite of having some chronic age-related maladies like arthritis, I don't feel old. But the fellow I see in the mirror when I brush my teeth in the morning does look a little long in the tooth. I've been thinking about this because one of my former school bus kids is doing a carpentry job for Becky and me. We hired him to rebuild a treated wood staircase that's next to our kitchen because it rotted. My friend Todd and I built the original 18 years ago when I was building houses, and at that time, it was an easy job for me to complete. These days, spending hours on my knees isn't an option. And I've slowed down to the point where this project would take me several weeks to complete instead of the several days it's taking my friend. The bone spurs in my back slow me down and my eyes aren't what they used to be. But the more I think of it, the happier I am. 
because for the most part, I really don't have anything to complain about. When I was my friend's age, I worked for several people who were the age that I am now, and a few of them had done a lot of carpentry work during their lifetimes. There comes a time when it's your turn to hire someone to help, and I accept that my role now is being a consultant and a helper rather than lead carpenter and board carrier. On this project, we were able to keep most of the foundation posts because they're still in pretty good shape. But there were two handrail posts that were hopelessly rotten, and my friend asked me to cut them. The design calls for the posts to be at an angle that's less than 45, and I had to figure out the compound mitered mortise cuts that the handrail sits in. It's been a while, and I'm a bit rusty, so the first two that I cut were both wrong. This is where the advantage to being older kicks in. I've lived long enough that I've made plenty of mistakes, and rather than being frustrated, I worked out a better way to solve the problem. In this case, the third time was the charm, and the handrail fits like a glove. In my view, it's all about accepting the transition you're faced with and finding different ways to accomplish the same tasks by working smarter, not harder. The other thing I've been thinking about is passing the mantle on to the next generation. I've had the good fortune to work with several people who were far more talented than I am, and I was lucky enough to be with them at a time when they had a lot to teach me. One way or another, we all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us, and now it's my turn to pass along what I know. The fellow who's working with me was about 12 years old when we met. Thirty-some years later, we're still friends, and in many ways our roles have reversed. He's at his zenith, and I'm beginning to cash my chips in. It's good to have some chips, and it's very good to have old friends who can help me out. As a homesteader who built my own house, I never pictured a time when I couldn't do all of the work myself. After all, I still know how. But time waits for no one, and the day has come when it's someone else's turn to do many of the things that used to be so easy for me and now are not. I'm not the first older guy to face this dilemma. My grandpa was a carpenter, and he had a small wood shop that he worked in until age and illness caused him to hang up his tool belt. If he is my example, then I have more than a few years before it's my turn to hang it up. And the way to do that is to accept that I have a part to play, but I don't have to do it all. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. This is a tribute to all the guitar players out there. It's called The Man with a Guitar. So, and it's funky too, so. in through the curtain the way he's done it before the head to pick that bronze and wood and lay it out on the floor to most he is a stranger no one from any place some say he sold his soul to the devil but he can pay amazing grace 
Another person who cares when you do the boogie all night long. Make you wanna boogie till the break of dawn. You're gonna slide up the net and work his fingers to the bone. And you know where you stand when you hear the Thanks for tuning in to episode 87 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. And be sure to look for us on iTunes and Stitcher. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe now more than ever the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, 
Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Jim Lemon, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County home.